0: does anybody have any questions or thoughts from the last time we met? and I'm standing up here and saying I think we're just going to keep meeting for a little while here there's going to be one Tuesday in May when uh, Kirtani will be visiting us from Assisi and we'll have an informal satsang with her on that night but other than that I see no obstacles in the road you may laugh at me later (laughs) All right. ready? number 75 One day, a new disciple, in a fit of emotional frenzy, cried, pleaded, and shouted to God to appear. Others were meditating with him and felt intensely embarrassed by his emotional outburst. One of them wrote the master a note afterward inquiring whether it is all right, spiritually, to be so outwardly expressive. "'By all means, it is all right,' replied the master." Cry to God. Roll on the ground in your fervor of longing for Him. Half-heartedness will never take you to God. The Master had taken this opportunity, however, to fan the fire of devotion in those disciples' hearts, especially in the one who had written that note, who tended himself to be rather lukewarm. As a rule, the Master never incurred, never counseled emotional displays unless they proceeded from an uncontrollable inner fervor. On another occasion, he told that same emotional disciple, don't be like a straw fire in your devotion. Enthusiasm is good, but keep it under control. Otherwise, you will merely scatter its power. If you explode dynamite high in the air, he continued, it will only make a loud noise. If you bury it in the ground, however, its explosion may make possible the building of highways or the construction of tall buildings. Enthusiasm, similarly, is wonderful, but learn to be enthusiastic about the right things and in the right way. Feeling should be calmly focused. Don't burn away the intensity as if in a straw fire. To demolish the mountain of delusion before you, he said, inwardness is necessary." Devotion must be kept under control. It should be a secret between you and your beloved. So he answered all sides of the question. So the first thing you really hear from reading that particular one is how completely personal advice is and how context is everything. Because the disciple who wrote the note to master was someone who could use with a little more fervor. You can just kind of see him sitting there. I mean, now picture the scene, actually. It was probably a group meditation of the monks, and one of the monks suddenly takes it upon himself in a, probably a very noisy, extremely emotional way just, to just start acting out, and everybody else is trying, sitting there trying to be austere and do what we usually do, and this one individual is completely breaking the mold. So it's easy sort of just to... Imagine how one might react Um, also because ultimately Master admonished him to be a little more self-controlled you you may can also infer from that that it, it wasn't necessarily so enjoyable for the other monks who were there that it wasn't necessarily uplifting it might have been more of a horizontal display however Master's response to that Disciple who was so concerned about being proper and not really letting things just get too much. Because you always have to balance any picture of a scene like that with the most famous example of that, which is Mary Magdalene coming in and washing the feet of Jesus. And the whole, that whole context of, you know, one presumes, just from the context of the times, that the men tended to to meet separately from the women, that it was a room full of men all having dinner together and she just burst in. Just burst in and sat down and started washing his feet when nobody was doing anything like that. And you have the comment of Judas sort of tut-tutting about what she's doing and I'm sure he was expressing what a lot of them felt. Why is this going on? So I always like to think, you know, how would I have responded? Would we... Would one have been able to tune in to the, the purity and the sincerity that hers was genuine inner fervor, which is why Jesus uh, did not admonish her, but actually commended her. She was saving this for my hour of this. she was saving this precious perfume for the hour of my death, and now is the time to use it. Um, but this other disciple, Master, cautioned. So it's all very... um, And it also tells us that every single direction that we... Every every word that we read that a master said, every comment that somebody tells you that Swamiji suggested we do this or suggested we do that, you always really want to try to understand what was the context in which this instruction was given. To ask that is not to diminish uh, your faith or your discipleship or your willingness... It's really just trying to be actively engaged in that discipleship rather than this is the way we do it. You know, this is the way we do it is a very big idea. And so we want to really be around that idea, not just around this is how we do this thing. Because maybe now, yes. Maybe tomorrow, no. Maybe for this disciple, yes. Maybe for that disciple, no. It's a very um, fine line. Because that same reasoning can make you very deep and sensitive, or it can become just such a convenient excuse for thinking that this doesn't apply to me, that everybody else has to do it, but for these reasons and these reasons. Um, We were having a discussion uh, a few weeks ago about a corrective that Swami issued in in, uh, 1998 about how much guitar was a good idea in chanting, how many chords. Just, uh, he felt that, that the chanting style was moving farther and farther away from the simplicity that Master himself presented. Master himself played melody with one harmonium. Swami consciously added guitars. We started having groups of people play. And it just started shifting and in 1998. Plus, he felt we were moving much too much toward an Indian style of chanting. This was all what Swami wrote in the chanting letter, which is in his book, Letters of Divine Friendship. And uh, he, he pointed out that Master came from India and almost never sang Indian-style chants. So it wasn't as if he wasn't completely familiar with the form and couldn't easily have done it, but he deliberately did not. And Swami said even the one Rata, uh, Rata Radha, Radha, Radha Govindajai Swamiji said he usually chanted that only in the context of talking about Krishna. He didn't tend to use it just as a chant. Um, so Swami reminds us that we're here not for, uh, to follow our own inclinations but to serve our own attunement but above all to serve the master's work. And if he came to America and set a certain tone then we, we have to take that seriously. We can't just say, oh, but I like this. Oh, but I feel so inspired this way. But it was very interesting to me that in all that discussion about that chanting letter, certain people had certain explanations about why Swami wrote that and why it didn't have to apply now. <laughs> and they were, they were not inaccurate. They had to do with the exact time and place, but, but they were not accurate. <laughs> they were not inaccurate, but they were not accurate. So I say that also, it's a very fine line. I, I was just in a, uh, last week, which is why we didn't have class, I was at Ananda village and the leaders of the American colonies and uh, one from India were, we all gathered at Ananda village. And it was very interesting to me and I really, one of the things that it made me really appreciate is the necessity for us to pool our information when it comes to what do we think Swamiji said. Because he may have said one thing to one person and another to another. And yet, when we're then making further decisions based on what he said, there just needs to be a very respectful pause. Well, everybody says one to another. Does anybody have any other information on this? Because you easily can. uh, Because Swamiji worked with everybody differently. and, And we all have no idea what each other were doing a lot of the time in regard to him. This is, in fact, exactly what happened to Swami Kriyananda at SRF, which is that most of Swamiji's significant time with Master, they were alone. And a great deal of what Master gave to Swamiji to do was given to him totally in private. And so then later not inaccurately, but not entirely accurately, other disciples can say, well, he never said anything like that to me. And he didn't. But he did say it to someone else, and that just has to be weighed. It's, it's, I'm saying it's a very fine line as a disciple, but what we're really needing to learn to do is think like disciples, not memorize the Guru's instructions. I'll... One of my classic favorites was when somebody brought Swamiji, I think the actual word is waved at Swamiji like this, with some quote from Master that said, you should just you know, meditate most of the time and then just do a few hours of God-reminding work and then going back to meditate. And that was in the early years of Ananda Village when we were working as long as we could stay upright. We were working. It was no. Swami just looked at it like this. He said, Oh, that's for a higher age. And just put it aside like that. <laughs> he said, We have something else to do now. But it wasn't that Master didn't say it. It was, Why am I attached to this particular one? What, is it, what does it mean to me? You always be a little suspicious when you cling a little too hard. I also remember another cycle of Ananda when. It, it, it was a grim cycle we would get into grim cycles every once in a while I'm not quite sure why but we were in a grim cycle and we were sort of having some community meeting Swamiji wasn't present talking about something and someone said how many of you can quote at least one significant phrase from Master about how tough the spiritual path is how many of you can quote something about how joyful it is <laughs> you know? there were just as many it's just that you begin to fall onto a certain side. You have, to, you have to really watch yourself. I find it interesting sometimes to see what I'm picking out. Oh, that's a fantastic phrase. You know, it begins, for a period of time I, I kind of wrote down the ones that really struck me and actually sort of put them up where I could see them. and It's very interesting later to go back and see, you know, it was a very consistent theme. You know, just, oh, obviously I was working on the same thing, that's why all these points hit me. And it was over so I took it all down and then you start on something else that's the great fun of the path the other phrase that he uses in here which is a phrase Swami used a lot he got it from Master was uh, straw fire and it, he, caught, he uses it twice in this Swamiji, Master does quote Swami twice Swamiji quotes Master twice is telling someone don't be like a straw fire straw fire is a phenomenon that if you stay with the uh, community long enough you begin to recognize the concept of straw fire because people will come in and they'll just be so enthusiastic but you can kind of feel that the fuel that they're burning is quick burning it's not like a piece of charcoal that's just going to get deeper and deeper and then you know quietly radiate heat for the rest of the incarnation and even Master himself he's saying there he's cautioning this man don't be like a straw fire. Don't just burn so hot and so bright so fast that it's all gone and there's nothing you can, you have nothing left. It's better, the, the fastest way to make spiritual progress is patiently and slowly. If you throw yourself too far into it, you, I mean, burn out is the actual word. But it's also something to watch. Don't, don't be too concerned if you're, you know, moving at a steady clip. Don't become impatient. And, and you begin, it, just in terms of discernment, it's not like we're here judging one another, but if you can develop your discernment about the different ways people relate to the spiritual path, you can also be appropriate in your responses to other people. You know, if, if you learn to recognize a straw fire and you learn to be just a little cautious, you're still encouraging. Um, it's, I, I find it's best, myself, to take people as they present themselves to me. Meaning, if, if I, 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 I try as much as possible to accept a person's idea of what they're doing rather than always correct the, I, their idea of what they're doing. But if you know someone is going to need to interiorize his energy or her energy a little bit more if they're really going to last, you just know that. You keep that somewhere in your mind and you can be more helpful to people then. Swamiji also talked to us when, when we were earlier in the ministry. We, you know, it's kind of the collective generation I'm part of. Um, because people would come and seem so enthusiastic and, um, you know, as the shepherd you felt you lost a lot of sheep. is the only way I can put it. And, but I remember Swamiji really very seriously saying to us, only a few people have the good karma to have lifelong spiritual karma. He said most people are in the cycle where they'll touch into it for a while and then they'll move out. And he said you mustn't take it personally when they do that. He said they've just they have whether it's straw or coal or wood they've burned all the fuel they have. We at that time uh, uh, living in the trailers that well the trailer where a lot of the girls lived at that point um, we were we we weren't hooked up to any. utilities of any kind. And the way we had uh, heat and fuel for the stove with these uh, propane tanks, these big tanks that we rolled up and down the hills. and, And they were really interesting because as long as there was any propane in there, it continued to burn. It didn't like go down slowly like a battery. It just was completely there and then it wasn't. Although it began to smell just a little bit at the end, <laughs> but it would just be completely there and then it was gone. And uh, that was the, that became like the image in my mind of the straw fire devotee that just completely there until it's gone. But when it's gone, where is the fuel? You have to constantly, and for yourself too, you have to be constantly adding, not just burning. You have to be feeding yourself with satsang, with sadhana, with study, with appropriate attention. Otherwise you'll just ride your good karma and then it'll be gone. And if you're not feeding it, you won't know. You're just, it's burning and then it won't burn at all anymore. You won't even know why. So the, it's not a curse to say that you're, you're only, many people only have karma for a certain period of time. You're not, you're not helpless in the face of that. But knowing that, don't take it for granted. Because in the first enthusiasm of the straw of fire, you might think that you've got all the fuel you need in there but you need to be building it and adding it and building it and adding it the whole time. But I've never, I was going to say, I'll say certainly say rarely, and I might want to say never, I've never been surprised by the decisions people ultimately make because you could see them coming. People sort of started going, you just make a series of decisions and even though you're going like this, if you start, if you start drifting, you know, then eventually you're facing another direction it's much easier to fix it when you first start drifting than it is when you're all the way over to here because by the time you're all the way over to here what happens is you've lost connection with the vibration another way of saying that is that you're really out of tune with the vibration but you've lost the vibration and it doesn't uh, you can't tell how far you've gone I mean I've I've seen that, that very sad fruit and then 25 years later people come back with this sort of like, why did I ever leave? Why didn't I stay? You know, and then one more incarnation is rolled by. Any questions or comments? But at the same time, I I didn't want to not lose. You know, Master talking about the fact that he did encourage that disciple at the beginning. Don't be lukewarm. You know, give it everything you've got and if you're a little bit on the side of too much that's better than being on the side of too little because at least Swamiji said you've got something to work with (laughs) you can correct too much, but too little you just don't have any material to work with so too narrow a sense of propriety is one of the things that binds, that limits us too narrow a sense of respectability, I think that's how it's put that's why Master had some of his disciples do things that were embarrassing to him that was earlier in this book, Doctor Lewis having to energize and the nuns having deep watermelon by the side of the road and just like so what? We have to be just a little bit freer if we're gonna be devotees. Tom. Tom needs the microphone.
1: I was thinking just about what was said last night in the Jairam sasang where he was in a is in a unique situation and has had to very very firmly and strongly you know always be truthful and always be harmless and you could th- sort of think of those as extreme positions out here in our nice comfortable environment that we all practice our life in but it seems absolutely appropriate for him we're in the situation that he's in so I'm wondering if Sometimes your situation talks, you know, can talk to you about uh, how much enthusiasm you show in a, in a particular spiritual practice or a sadhana or...
0: Well, what uh, Tom is making reference to, a, a disciple of Master and a friend of ours who's been wrongly incarcerated in maximum security prisons for 30 years... And once he got kriya, which was fairly early into that, has never missed a practice. Although sometimes he's literally practicing in the chaos of men screaming and televisions and things like that, he just shuts his eyes and does his kriya. Um, very spectacular example of willpower and determination, and it's um, uh, it's made his life successful, regardless of the fact that by any other standard. It's been a very strange life. Um, so I don't quite understand the question after that. I mean... It was
1: actually a question, maybe it was more just a... It just occurred to me that it's, an, it's a spectacular example of someone just being absolutely committed and firm in their practice and in their dedication. Yeah. And
0: So you asked the question, it, because he, he, it, it's a miscarriage of justice it's a complicated story but it's a big miscarriage of justice which we hope will be righted with the next hearing in a few weeks um, uh, what's good karma and what's bad karma if, if you have a lifetime in which circumstances are so challenging that you are absolutely driven to spiritual practice on a level that you might not have been driven to is that good karma is that bad karma and that's, it is, it's, that's why you have to think about things from a wholly different angle once you become a devotee. What is day to the spiritual man is night to the yogi. What is night to the spiritual man is day to the yogi. Swami always uses the example of Elvis Presley who did in fact become interested in Master's path. But, um, you know, should he have become a singer? He had the karma to become you know, in, uh, unbelievably popular as a singer, and he had a really beautiful voice. But it just, all that wealth, all that adulation, it just so twisted up his uh, capacity to live. Was it good karma to be that famous and successful? Would, uh, if if somebody had with wisdom had counseled him, would they have counseled him away from it? It's just, it's really hard to know. The other part of it is, which is so much more obvious to me at the age I am, is how how small one incarnation is. You know, you just, this is what you do for this one, and this is what you do for the next one, this is what you do for the one after. You just, uh, it's all about what you're building. It's not so much about what you are, it's which direction are you facing, and what are you developing. Not so much what have you accomplished, what do you look like, what shows, but which way are you facing, what are you building. And if you're doing that as conscientiously as you are able to do it, and we simply can't be better than we are, I would really like to be better than I am. I mean, it's just like I just would so love to be better than I am, but um, I'm not, I can't quite get around it. But it it so there you are, but which way am I facing, and what am I building? Then you know you take care of your family, and you have your job, and you have your money, and you have your this and your that. But what am I really building? So in keeping with that question, because Jai Ram's condition in prison, I mean it, he also he's made a decision that was the same decision I read, and I think I shared this in this class series, but maybe it was a different one about I read about this man who was in the French Resistance didn't I talk about that here and he talked about how he was absolutely he would not break any moral law that he had set for himself because everything was so corrupt around him he couldn't touch it and that's to a certain extent where Jairam is there's no margin there's just no margin but you see none of us have any margin it's just more obvious to him that's all because his circumstances are so intense But uh, really, is it a blessing that ours are not? That we think we can get away with it? All we're actually doing is just postponing the day of reckoning where he is, the slightest misstep literally can end your life or certainly make it unpleasant. But we can just kind of uh, muck about quite a lot and we we don't seem to get the consequences. Oh, all right. Any other questions or comments? Okay, number 76. A rich man visited a a farmhouse. The farmer gave, um, gave him a piece of cake and boasted, this is the best cake in the whole world. The rich man tasted it and commented, it is all right. I would like, however, to invite you to my home and let you taste the cake we serve there. The farmer returned his visit later on. When he tasted the rich man's cake, he exclaimed, I never knew there was such good cake in existence. The other replied, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but you were familiar only with that dry cake of yours. I know many varieties. This is how I knew that yours was by no means the best in the world. So it is when you get a taste of divine bliss you know immediately that nothing else else in existence can equal it. Temptation then becomes dry and loses all its attractiveness. The best way to conquer temptation is to have something better to compare it with. That was Gandhi's instruction for renunciation. His instruction was, don't ever give up a pleasure until you have replaced it with a better pleasure. (laughs) And Swami's uh, response to how much discipline is enough is he said that which you can do continue to do joyously as soon as it, it feels like a burden he said you just need to to back up to the point where it's still a, a joyous challenge I was I was um, reflecting on this when I was hearing the men's group sing in the garden um when I was watched you at the rehearsal and just was watching you all standing there. and uh, That song is about, uh, it was written by a man who had a vision of Mary Magdalene being with Jesus. So meeting in the garden with Jesus is Mary Magdalene meeting him in the garden. And it's such a beautiful hymn that Master liked. And it, it's a little old-fashioned, but it has such a wonderful feel to it. I, I love hearing it. But I was really trying to I was thinking about renunciation. And I was thinking about, you know, a, a major form of renunciation, which people will do, which is to become brahmacharis, to become monks or nuns, to just forego that whole um, intimate relationship side of life, which is so compelling um, for almost everyone. It just I remember being a teenager and just just what was of interest to me you know boys is what we would call it in those days but it just I had other things that I was interested in but it was always a compelling thought who will I marry what kind of a family will I have um, and you can read about renunciation but it, if, you're, if you're not there it doesn't make any sense to you but what what really happens really just literally is that you have a love relationship it's not like you're giving it up because that longing in the heart is so profound um, you can't just suppress it Um, you have to replace it and even if um, well the course of true love is never smooth (laughs) uh, human merely because there's an incarnated person to be your partner instead of the spirit of the divine or your guru or your deva it doesn't really work any better if there's someone there necessarily there's as much tragedy in that respect and that's what we were reading a few weeks ago you know lovers pledge themselves to each other eternally and the moon laughs at their bleached bones we went through that plenty but what really happens is that you're just joyous and and there's a Far from feeling deprived there 's such a uh, you you feel unbound that 's actually the word Swami wrote somewhere this word this then to me is renunciation to kick aside all limitation and embrace infinity and that 's not how people think of renunciation, but to kick aside limitation that 's what real renunciation is and People imagine, you know, I have one person who really loves me and maybe we make a little family together and that looks like something that's very fulfilling and if it's your karma it's the right thing for you to do but from another angle it looks imprisoning because now you're so bound by this, all these conditions and all of these things that are going on but true renunciation is the freedom of it just the freedom of it i i remember from those early days when so many when when the monastic life was really the life at ananda that people picked it up from different strings people picked it up from the string of i'm serious about the spiritual path if i'm serious i need to be a monastic therefore i will be a monastic or people picked it up from the string is of um, i want to kick aside all limitation and embrace infinity it's a completely different angle to pick it up from One was a sense of expanding joy, and the other was a sense of necessary confinement. And of course, nothing is ever quite that simple as as to be either or. But in our own spiritual life, whatever condition we find ourselves in, whether we're single or married with a family, whatever stage of life that you're in, you want to regard. You want to regard everything in the most expansive possible light, and not um, not put too much weight on any aspect of it. But just really see um, where I'm trying to go, what I'm trying to experience. And this is this little story of the cake and the farmer and the rich man. Don't limit yourself to what you already know. That's what I'm saying, and and have the creative imagination to think that there could be an experience I don't even know anything about. And th- that's what he's saying here, that this is the best because this is what I have. But who knows? Something completely other could be shown to you or forced upon you, and then you would discover in it something that you didn't even know, using Jai Ram as an example. Who knows whether his life would have been better if it, if it hadn't been directed in this way this could have been the best possible thing that could have happened to him, he can't say. But we can always just keep looking at it like that. Because that is the point, is freedom. And um, everybody's, everybody stands at a different angle, so forward is different for everyone, whatever we're doing. Enjoy what we have, enjoy what God gives you, be grateful for it, but always be interested in the possibility that something else could happen that I don't even know anything about. I mean, think of Teresa of Avila. Um, Jesus would appear to her regularly. He would visit her in her cell. And so there she was. She was a cloistered nun. She'd been um, the toast of the town. She was the daughter of a very well placed family. She was beautiful and um, uh, uh, very magnetic. And you know, every all the the, the men in the town, who, who was going to have the honor of marrying this woman and so on and so on, and she just left it all and went into a cloistered convent. And you would think, you know, from a certain point of view that she'd lost so much. But she had a love affair with Jesus. She didn't need to have um, a human man as a husband. To her that was contractive, not expansive, because she had another experience that was completely different. We have to open ourselves to that possibility. I remember reading in... uh, that book I was a monk by John Tetner which is a very interesting book about this man who um, had a who was a very happy priest but then he had a true mystical experience and he, he recognized that his theology was false and so he had to leave the church and leave the priesthood because he could see that religion and spirituality were different it was, it was thrust upon him he didn't choose it but he talked about that he suddenly lost his vocation when all that happened and he he just talked about he said you know as a, a young he came into the uh, monastic life as a teenager but it was always his life and he was very comfortable with it but just before he left he said he glanced out the window of his cell and there was a woman standing there and uh, he said you know it, it, naturally in his life he'd seen many women but usually he just went on And he said he looked at her, he went on, and then he said he looked back, and then went on. And he said he knew in that moment he'd lost his vocation and he had to do something else. But he'd he'd lost it for other reasons, but it was also like God was taking him in a different direction. So it was such an interesting, just so small, but he could tell within himself, now something had changed. But the other side of it is, you see, he wasn't deprived. He felt very free. He was very happy to put that aside. Swamiji said to us, to a whole group of of married couples, he said, I know you're all married, he said, but once you get past this delusion of men and women, he said, you wonder why you were ever caught in it. He said, once it's over, it's so over. (laughs) He didn't use those words, but those were the effect. He said, I know that that's not where you all are living, he said, but once it's gone, you just can't understand what was ever holding you because it's a substitute I mean Master even talked in a, a couple of uh, I was going to say slokas ago but a couple of entries ago about how we used to have lots of friends a, a man told him I used to have lots of friends but then once I got married I just lo- lost all my friends and I realized even my friends were longing for that that, that particular one-to-one but Master said you know we're, we're always looking for the perfect relationship with God and in the meantime, well, what we really do is we learn and practice. So you don't, don't think you can skip that step. Because if you're drawn that way, you're drawn that way. You just have, you have to follow it. I wish I were better than I am. I wish I had somebody else's karma to work out. Their karma looks so much easier than mine, more attractive, more important, more advanced. But we are where we are. But just always know, this is all just, this is just a lila, we're just practicing. We're just practicing until we actually find our fulfillment um, with God alone, and not until. You know, most of masters, most advanced disciples and two of our gurus were married. Sri Yukteswar was married and had a daughter. He didn't become a swami until all that was over. Lahiri Mahasaya was married and remained so. Oliver Black who was master described as the second most advanced male disciple, was married. Sijanakananda was married. Sister Gyanamata was married. Dr. Dr. Lewis and Mrs. Lewis were there together. Um, Kamala was married. Uh, there was one more. Um, Durga Mata's husband, she left her husband to be a monastic, but she married and then left her husband to become a nun. But really, it's, it's very important to note that. It's just weaving all the way through it it's not as if it's just a clear, obvious thing that everybody who's serious becomes monastic not at all but wherever we find ourselves um, don't ever forget what we're really doing but don't give up a pleasure until you have a higher pleasure and whatever life you find you find yourself in if it's the one you've chosen, excellent if it's been forced upon you by circumstances and you can't seem to change it Try to find within it that kernel of divine freedom and, and drink it, drink it deeply. Whatever it is, whatever the divine potential of it, drink it as deeply as you can. Because among other things, the Swami said to me often, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. So the best way to finish something, especially if you're not fond of it, is to really just give it your all. You know, take, do the absolute best you can with it because then you won't have to do it again and again if you're resisting it, fearing it um, that just sets you up to have to do it again tiresome I often say to myself I don't ever want to see this karma again you know once is too many let's see let's see if we can just really drink this cup to the dregs and then go on not that the next thing will be easier but at least it will be different there won't be this anguishing sense of monotony here I am all right, let's take a little break. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go on from here? Okay. The microphone. You must still have the microphone. Okay.
1: I just wanted to comment about how absolutely fascinating the spiritual path is because there are answers for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's all very... Precisely spelled out for us. If you have the energy to go and find the answer, you know you're you're hungry for the answers, and then also, um, in my own life, uh, the only thing that's ever really worked for me is love and devotion for God. Mm-hmm. If I try to make myself do things, it just doesn't. I'm just a rebel, just too rebellious. But when I through the grace of God and Raghu's kirtans and Swami's you know and got some some small amount of love happening in the heart then all of a sudden I was willing to to try and keep going and do th- you know make some changes and things like that so I keep thinking the answer is love God
0: <laughs> yeah that uh, I've heard that before <laughs> I think it does work because when you love it's effortless and the happiness is already there and once the happiness is there you'll do anything else for that happiness and to find it out for yourself too you have, yeah you have to that's sort of what uh, what we were talking about you can't give up a pleasure until you have a deeper pleasure you can't say this, if I were spiritually advanced people who are spiritually advanced would do this therefore I'll do this you have to say where's my joy Haridas used to call it the joy barometer is the joy barometer sinking or rising? The joy-o-meter. And you just have to be really sincere with yourself and find the spot that works. If you do that consistently, you see, everything keeps working. And you just have to keep going. And as a community, we're actually very nice as a community. We, you know, we, we get that. And we don't think in terms of what people are supposed to do. We just watch and see what people are doing and then try to encourage them. And when people need to bust out of things and make changes and do it differently, we just kind of stand there with them. You know, we, don't, we don't have this like narrow thread that if you don't follow this, you're finished. So if you're sincere and you're doing your best, and it all comes from Swami, every bit of it. He just completely defined for us what it means to be masters, disciples, what it means to be brothers and sisters. Everything we do is just a reflection of what he did, And everything he did was a reflection of what Master did. I mean, I asked him that once. Oh, Swamiji, the way you do things, it's the way Master did them, isn't it? "Uh Uh-huh. I said, and if you don't do something, it's because it wasn't the way Master did it. "Uh Uh-huh. Like, yeah, What, what, what else would I do? Sort of what he's asking. But he also, as I was saying, because again, everything I say is just what he taught me, he always thought about context. He always thought about intention. He always thought about the reasoning behind it. He didn't just ever look at superficial and look at the one we you know, just read a minute ago. Yes, by all means, roll on the ground and yell and shout, except don't roll on the ground and yell and shout. So it just depends on what is Master trying to do? He's trying to help people. So what is Swami trying to do? He's trying to help people. What are we trying to do? We're trying to help people, which includes us. I count myself in that. I'm trying to help people and I'm people. So, we have to also regard ourselves as we would regard everyone else. But what works, and there's a couple that are coming up, I don't know if I'll get to it yet, but you know, a couple of examples of how Master dealt with adversity and criticism and people denigrating him. You know, you just, people think you have to stand up, but you have to do what helps, what works. All right, moving right along to number 77. Did the master ever sleep, someone asked me recently, I replied. All I can say for sure is that I remember hearing him tell us once, I experimented last night with going into the subconscious. It was like being hemmed in by a heavy wall of fresh flesh. I didn't like that feeling at all. Sleep, he used to tell us, is the semi-conscious way of knowing that we are spirit. We would not have been able to bear life without it. Even though subconsciousness can be pleasant, however, it is also a sort of drunkenness. Much, much more enjoyable is superconsciousness. Often he commented, sleep is counterfeit ecstasy. <laughs> but he's talked about that. What happens to us in sleep is that we forget. We forget our identity. That was, that was where the Similarity to, to spiritual awakening comes from, and he also masters use the example in other contexts of how actually uh, evanescent our self-definition is, because all we have to go, do is go to sleep and we don't have it. When you're asleep, you don't know who you are, you don't know where you are. I'm sure all of you have had the same experiences I've had, especially in these last two months when I've been in so many different places. I just wake up and I don't know where I am. Uh, you just have to start over. You know, you're afraid to get out of bed because you don't know where the bed is and where the wall is and just like, where am I? What day is it? Why am I here? There was a period of time just a few days ago when every time I woke up I had just feeling that I was supposed to be giving Sunday service somewhere. <laughs> and I was still in bed. You know, what was I doing? It was just this sort of all these circuits in my head were so crossed. And then I would realize, no, it's... One in the afternoon on Thursday. It's really just fine. Just trying to pull it together. But we lose, we lose it. That's why he calls it counterfeit. We lose our troubles. We're free. But, of course, we wake up. And it all comes back. That's one of the comments about... Uh, if you bathe in the Ganges, you it know, washes away all your karma... You, you get rid of all your karma but the karma waits in the trees and when you come out of the river it jumps back down on you again so that's sort of what happens when we sleep you know you, you blissfully get to be forgetful for a while but you keep coming back but I love that hemmed in by heavy walls of flesh they say that you know waking up from this world into superconsciousness, consciousness um, waking from a, a being sound to sleep into this world is a minor transition compared to waking from this world into super consciousness which m- enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy that's how Master described it marvelous wordsmithing so if it's beyond imagination of expectancy well there you are but it will come it will come, it will come that's what he said alright, comments or thoughts before we go on? I have no idea, but he's looks like he's a African American, doesn't he? Master, um, when Master there's a picture in this book, that's what she was asking about. And that he's not identified. There's no captions on most of these pictures, which is very annoying. There's a caption doesn't say Pardon me? There's a caption but it doesn't they probably don't know. It's probably think of how many people appear in pictures. Some, some editions have a caption, some don't. Oh, what does yours have? But it doesn't say anything. What does it say? What just... no, it's, uh, so this is the photograph on page 98. Uh-huh. And it says, In public in the West, the master favored Western clothing. He pulled his long hair back into a knot to give the appearance of short hair. For spiritual occasions, he wore Indian clothes and let his hair hang, lo- hang loose it doesn't say anything about who the Well, I didn't is. even know that, that there was an addition with captions. But um, Master was considered to be a colored man in America in the 1920s and 30s. And uh, sometimes in certain areas, like Washington DC, I think it was, he couldn't, uh, and in, when he went to Florida, Miami, he couldn't appear with, in a mixed audience. And uh, so he, he formed um, colored people's groups And so you see him, and he, you know, that was, he he wouldn't, um, so you see these wonderful pictures of him uh, with all these dark-skinned Americans meeting with him, and he was one one of them, really, not one of the uh, white people's side, and he he just didn't, of course, he wasn't going to let any of that interrupt. You know, I can imagine how, I don't know where this picture came from, um, but Swami, you know, just had a gradual collection of pictures. I have, had a hu- I have a huge collection of pictures of Swamiji with all kinds of people, and I have no idea in a lot of cases who the people are, so you just end up with them, because, oh, can I take your picture, especially nowadays? Yeah, so, all right, that's interesting. So let's go on to number 78. There are two aspects to the following stories. One is the petty opposition the master had to face continually in his life, a common phenomenon, unfortunately, in the life of every great human being, especially in the lives of saints and masters. The other aspect is the unfailing charity the master always displayed before opposition. These stories were not ones he would have told generally. He did tell them to me, however, perhaps to encourage me always to keep a non-sectarian attitude. I hesitated at first to include them in this book. Yet they convey salutary lessons on an all-too-common human trait, sectarianism. Trait Sectarianism is one of the meannesses of the heart, as Sri Yukteswar called them, pride of pedigree. Even among the followers of great men, and Sri Ramakrishna was certainly a great man, and also a great master, sectarian attitudes are, unfortunately, all too common. In niches along the side walls of his little church in Hollywood, the master placed sacred images to represent other religious paths. Thus he underscored the truth he'd proclaimed in the very name of the church self realization, church of all religions. To Deby Mukherjee, an Indian disciple, he said, I would have liked to have a representation of Sri Ramakrishna in one of those niches. For although he isn't in our line of gurus, I have always had deep devotion to him and would have liked to honor him. In this country, however, too many of his disciples display a sectarian intolerance toward other expressions of India's teachings. Only because of their attitude I have omitted him." The master was concerned, evidently, that these disciples might protest. He didn't want his sweet act of devotion to become a cause for disharmony among from others, disharmony from others. It's all very interesting in many ways. You know, in autobiography of a yogi, um, he has that long section about the blissful devotee, who was Master Mahashaya, who was who published the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna under the name M. And, you know, when you read the autobiography, sort of paying attention to all the details, which you you have to read it dozens and dozens of times, something new is always popping out. His devotion to Master Mahashaya was um, enormous. And he always talked about Master Mahashaya's devotion to Ramakrishna and he has a whole chapter in the book, The Heart of a Stone Image, which takes place at the Kali Temple near Calcutta in Dakinishwar, where this, the Mother Kali uh, came to him. And he talked about how many visits he took to that temple with Master Mahashaya. And he asked Master Mahashaya, Are you my guru? And Master Mahashaya said, No, your guru will come later. But all of this is really telling you how. Um, direct and profound his connection was with Sri Ramakrishna. And it's it's important for us to know that just from the point of view even of our own path, what's appropriate, how, how do we have a, appropriate respect, and so on, to the point where he would have included him in that temple. But now you see how really interesting it is. For some reason, as it just always happens, you know, that uh, ironically, that lineage just got very rigid, um, very quickly. Um, of course not all of them. I myself, as many of you know, it was through Vivekananda and Sri Ramakrishna that I was first drawn to the self realization teachings and he was my Upa Guru, which is the Guru not forever, but he, he it was it was more than just I liked his books. You know, he really took care of me and I was extremely conscious of that and so much so that when I met Swami and came to Ananda because Swami wasn't asserting himself as a guru he was, he was pointing toward Yogananda always at that time and so I didn't know between Yogananda and Ramakrishna really where I belonged that was how um, connected I was even though I'd never done anything external about it it hadn't occurred to me to do so um, but oh just a sec I lost the thread for a minute there Oh, because... I, but I knew that I needed to be wherever Swamiji was and that he had everything I wanted and I needed to learn from him. And I literally said to Ramakrishna and to Yogananda, you guys sort this out. And about a year after I was there, it just became obvious to me that you know the whole package belonged to me. Um, but it was, it was like a handoff. <laughs> In the little game, they kind of gathered me up and handed me off. But it's nice to hear that because you know we we want to give appropriate reverence and respect and so on but look what happens and so i think swami includes these stories here and he just makes one small sentence you know sectarianism has ripped up yogananda's work in the first generation too i mean this, this between, uh, the between the 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 treatment of self realization fellowship of not only us but uh, others who are not part of their fold it's unfortunate and so Swami wants us to really understand now here's the other side of it I mean Master's devotion for Ramakrishna is not of our line but he was a great master and played an enormous role in Master's own life as you can see and at the same time Master knew that to assert that devotion in a way that was in every way appropriate would cause dissonance it would it would put, you know, it would cause those swamis there, they would behave in a way that was not laudable, and he he didn't want to cause that. I mean, the I've seen Swami Kriyananda, and I, no example springs to mind at the moment, but I've seen him many times. Refrain from doing something, because it would have an unfortunate ripple effect, even when the, those who were behaving badly were really in the wrong but still he wouldn't be the catalyst for their wrong action he, he, and knowing that he was in no position to help them through it you know master was knew he would be unable to influence those swamis to have a, a, a broader point of view and if he acted in a certain way then it would cause them to behave badly and so he just wouldn't do it he wouldn't, the way the way Swami puts it, he wouldn't allow his sweet devotion to become the cause of, of disharmony for others. And that's a level of restraint um, that Swamiji always showed too. If he just knew it upset in a way that was, was unfortunate and unnecessary, couldn't be avoided, he would often sacrifice instead of just saying, it's their problem, I'm going to do it anyway. You can see how easily it would... Master could have easily said it's my church I'm going to just do it anyway it's right but no he didn't want to be the cause of that disharmony. It's something really serious to think about. Um, I have tending to be a sort of forceful uh, imposing kind of person if I think something is right. I've had to really um, tune into this and appreciate that Restraint is not always cowardice. Now we're walking another one of those edges where sometimes what you have to do is stand up, but restraint is not always cowardice. Sometimes it's just realizing the importance of harmony. It's a very interesting, it's just something to contemplate. Any comments or thoughts on that? All right, number seventy nine. Often when the master and I were alone, he would reminisce about episodes in his life. He made it clear, among other other things, that he deplored sectarianism, which, as he indicated, is all too prevalent among even the sincere followers of good paths. Once, he told me, a group of monks from the Vedanta Society, that's the Ramakrishna organization, arrived in America from India Out of love and devotion for their master, Sri Ramakrishna, I wanted to make them feel welcome and invited them to a lunch at the Encinitas Hermitage. We gave them a good Indian feast. As they were leaving, I asked them if they would like to sign our guest book. They looked at one another hesitatingly, as if asking whether by signing our book they might in any way compromise themselves." You have to really see that they did not have a high opinion of Master from the start. Why? Who knows? They resolved their dilemma by signing their names in Bengali so that no one would know that they'd done it. Seeing them do that, I felt like saying to them, please don't sully your names. I, Walter, Swami Kriyananda, remember thinking when the Master told me that story such narrowness of spirit could never enter the hearts of master's disciples he has trained us too clearly in attitudes of universal generosity and love has this remained so? I only ask the question he says it's quite a story isn't it? wow I mean we don't know anything of the context we don't know how the attitude developed you know, we, we really don't know. Swami speculates a little bit further on. But the most obvious explanation is probably the right one. Just jealousy, envy. Merely to don an uh, ochre robe um, does not in itself give you a pure heart. Everybody struggles. And so there they were. Plus, you know, they, whatever the institutional position was, on Paramahansa Yogananda and Self-Realization Fellowship they were representatives of that institution that's where they looked at one another asking if it would compromise them who knows what instructions they'd been given you know we've lived through this so long with the way SRF feels about Ananda that we're just used to it but why? it's just like and it's interesting that considering what Swami's future was let let me say this in another way the example both of how SRF developed immediately after Master's passing which it Im- immediately started going in a direction that was not as open-hearted as Master had been and continued in that way to the present day and of course the um, the first church of whatever always thinks it owns the teaching and when the second church of whatever starts The first church of whatever wants to expunge it because it's used to having a monopoly. It's the history of religion everywhere and we are the second church of whatever. And so we've been faced with the first church trying to expunge us. And uh, the dispute about what is really the theology, it's just, it's so tiresome. But the fact of having been the second church of and, and having watched the first church of make certain decisions... That took it in directions that don 't look attractive has just saved us so much time and difficulty, and so much of the way Swami organized ananda um, he he would have done it anyway, but it 's so crystal clear because it 's definitely being done to preclude and the way he 's trained us and the way he 's consistently held certain values in front of us and never allowed us to um, deviate from them insofar as he was able to, hold, to help us to hold that of charity and kindness and forgiveness and acceptance and so on and so on it's just like why not and, and we owe um, SRF a great debt of gratitude because that, that they, they blazed that other trail so uh, brightly and broadly that it illuminates all of our decisions as to which direction we're going to go and not go. When there were... Um, even, you know, just like, what, what kind of access will we allow to Swami's apartment now that he's passed away? You know, will you, be able, will, you only, will you be able to look in or will you be able to go in? You know, will you be able to touch things or will they be put behind glass? It's just like all kinds of questions, just as simple as that. Like, what happens? What, what actually preserves what you're trying to preserve and what is the best way to do it. Step by step by step, every single thing. Anyway, very, very interesting. So let's see. Number 80. The master faced opposition from several of the Indian swamis in America. He told me, the Vedanta Swami in Hollywood once told someone about me, oh yes, I know Yogananda, He is a very good cook. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Imagine. How it saddened the master to relate this story. He himself had such deep devotion for Sri Ramakrishna. One day, he said, I met that Swami at a public function. He came over to me and said, here is a line. On one side of it is Sri Ramakrishna. On the other side... He concluded with a look of contempt. You. Wow, how Ramakrishna would have grieved over such an abs- such absence of generosity among his own disciples. Yeah, I don't know even what to say. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? But also, when Master, you know, it it makes his refraining from honoring Ramakrishna the way he wanted to even more impressive because it wasn't as if these people treated him well but he just didn't want to he didn't want to get into it it wasn't worth it to him to get into it better to just go forward and that's really the phrase it wasn't worth it to him it wasn't the right movement to just not a battle worth fighting just if these people want to put out this kind of negative energy just let it be in fact, Swamiji often said when we were sued by self-realization you know, in 1990 if it had been him alone he said he'd never he wouldn't have defended it. But he said he had a responsibility for all of us who had. Of course, you know, we'd given our lives to Ananda. We'd, that's the path we'd taken as young people and we didn't have another way of life. And if Ananda had been annihilated as that lawsuit was attempting to do what would have become of us? And he just felt out of responsibility for us Swamiji had to take a stand but otherwise he said he never would have. This is why and the example that Master was that. Although when Master was sued he defended himself and when Sri Yukteswar was sued he defended himself. It's very complicated. Nothing is a straight shot here. But it's also worthwhile to note merely to be the disciple of a great master is no guarantee that you can't get a teeny-weeny mind on your own. So don't coast. You know, don't just ride the laurels. We're not master's children unless we behave as his children. Which is important. It also shows that you're not there till you're there. Yeah, you're not there till you're there. Swami Kriyananda once when we were talking something about some of the behavior of some of his Guru he said, well, when you're struggling to reach the top of the mountain, you don't have a lot of time necessarily to chat with the people around you. (laughs) He said, you just have to keep your consciousness forward. And people, because they are one-pointed, better that they should be one-pointed, though. And I think Master also didn't want to be the cause of You might want to say more bad karma. Why set things up in such a way that they would behave in ways that they would just have to balance out later?
1: Yeah. I've always been curious about um, other direct disciples of Master. I know we had uh, Brother Lawrence in here one time, and I forgot the woman's name at... Peggy Dietz. Mm-hmm. But I was always thinking about Roy Eugene Davis uh-huh. and the organization that he founded and was there ever any, you know, communications with that organization? Well, we, were,
0: we were in touch with <clears throat> we were in touch with Roy a lot. And, you know, in 1993, when we had the centennial for Master's Birth, Roy Davis, Bob Raymer, Peggy Dietz... Hare Krishna Ghosh and there was a, a few others and so yeah um, Swami made made continuous efforts to connect with other disciples um, most of which did not bear fruit because the influence of SRF was generally too strong I mean there was always if you befriend Kriyananda what will happen you know so Kamala and Oliver Black and others they didn't actually snub him but they nor would they entirely respond roy davis was independent roy davis was was is you know very independent and at this point in his life roy davis has made statements and offered things that were not are not consistent with the way master did them and uh, that swami kriyananda tried to encourage him to be more consistent with Master's way of doing things um, but Roy has his own ideas about what he's supposed to do so that, that precluded a little bit and also Roy was just on his own path you know they, they weren't all of Master's disciples or are either in some way involved with SRF or doing their own thing and it wasn't ours he, he, Swami tried many times to create relationships with any of his peers but it wasn't just wasn't given to him to do so. He had a very uh, solitary road to walk in that respect. And he was he was without peers. I don't mean he was peerless, which he also was, but he was without peers. Which is a you know, it's a lonely position. We were nice, but we were not the same.
1: He needed it in order to, to create the path that he did.
0: Apparently. He had to walk the path he had to walk. You just can't know. Those are one of the many things that only as I grew older did I really appreciate what that must have meant to him. You know, he he had people who were, you know, many people who loved him and were loyal to him and were great friends. You know, age was not so much an issue. He didn't pay attention to age. But, you know, other direct disciples had a unique experience that we just simply didn't have and he rarely was with anyone who was a peer and when he was you could just see how it fed him in a way that was uh, poignant you know just anyone who'd been there with Master at Mount Washington it was poignant I thought this was my sermon on Sunday so I won't go there anymore Okay, I think we've done it. We have gone um, from, let's see, we, we started at, where did we start? Yeah, wow, where did we start? Seventy-five. Seventy, seventy-five. So we started at seventy-five and we ended at eighty. Okay, thank you.